The following sermon is by Kenny Jones, Associate Pastor of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, you're probably wondering where is Grant Castleberry? Well, you know what? Number one, I'm better looking than him. And two, he is not here because sadly, Grant fell ill late last night. And so uh, we can be praying for Pastor Grant and the family, and we just ask for God's continued grace to be with them. And yes, on the back of the bulletin, it does say Grant Castleberry, the autopsy of dead religion. And if you thought I was going to pick up where he was, you were crazy. And so um, he is going to walk us through next week uh, through John 5, Lord willing. And so it is me you are stuck with. And nonetheless, God alone to be praised, and God will obviously do the work. Let me tell you something. You know, when things like this happen, people say, oh, you nervous? The great thing about this, we serve a sovereign God who has orchestrated every single event in our lives. There are no accidents and there are no chances. And so therefore, God had purposely put this into play for you and I to be able to behold his glory and for us to see not Grant nor I, but King Jesus. And so so this, God knew this was going to take place. And so, yep, to him be the glory. And so nonetheless, I'm very grateful for God to be able to give me the opportunity to walk with you through God's Word. And you know what? As Martin Luther famously said, let the Word do the work. And that's exactly what we're going to do, like we do every single week that Grant preaches or anybody else who is fulfilling uh, in this pulpit. If you're not already there, I'm going to ask if you will, flip over to Exodus chapter 15. You may already be there. I had your finger there from our time um, in the Scripture reading and pastoral prayer Exodus 15 is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's the Song of Moses. And to give you a little context of where we are in Exodus chapter 15, you know, up to this point, Israel is now free. And not only are they free, they are also on their way to the promised land. And they have been enslaved, if you are a student of the Bible, even even if you're not, if this is the first time you've heard the book of Exodus, People of Israel, God's people, have been enslaved for over 400 years. And now, because of the hand of God, because of his deliverer, Moses, they are now going to the place where he, has a, he wants his people to be established and to be able to worship and to be the people of God, to be Israel. God is with his people. And when you look at just the previous chapter in Exodus 14, this is probably the one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture because whether you just flip over a page or just see, it is when, the, when God splits the Red Sea in half for the people of Israel to cross and to be safe and continue on their journey to their promised land. Now listen, whether you have seen the Charlton Heston movie of, uh, I don't remember when it was made, but of the Ten Commandments, which is not biblically accurate, so to speak, 
But if, even if you remember that classic movie, there is a scene where you see Charlton Heston on the end of that rock splitting it in two and the people walk on dry land. And this is the context of where we are in Exodus chapter 15. It's an amazing feat of our Lord to take a people who are probably estimated about one million people crossing into, excuse me, going straight into a sea. Yet, they're not harmed, they're not wet, they're walking on dry ground, and God alone put them on the other side, and they are safe. And that's where we find ourselves here at the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. You know, it doesn't take you long to flip throughout the Bible and to see that songs are all throughout the Bible. If you flip over, of course, to the book of Psalms, it is nothing but a song book. There are songs of lament, there are songs of praise, there are songs of thanksgiving. You even see in the New Testament, you see, remember in Luke chapter 1, Mary's song of praise as she's giving God all the glory and the praise for she's able to carry in her womb the Savior, Jesus Christ. So there are songs all throughout Scripture. But what songs do for us, and I'm going to say this just a few times this morning, but what songs do for us, whether we realize it or not, they are portable memory tanks, aren't they? You can think of a song, whether you were a child, or you heard on the radio, and you, and you recall times gone by with your buddies. You may have a song that I can remember. As you know, I grew up in eastern North Carolina. My parents loved beach music. Half of y'all don't even know what beach music is, do you? Like the embers or anything like that? All right. Nope. Okay, some of y'all are shaking your head yes. There you go. Lee Holder does. Um, he can shag, by the way. And so, um, but I can remember songs played by bands like that, and I can remember my parents singing to one another and showing their love for one another, you know, songs about love. But that's what songs do, don't they? They really are portable memory tanks. But the thing is about Exodus chapter 15, when Moses is pouring out this song before Israel, but most importantly, God, what Moses is doing in this song is that he is showing us who God is, who God is. If there was a message of this sermon, you can write this down or not, but the title I would say for this sermon is for us to know God, knowing God, because that's exactly what Moses is doing in the context of this song. He is introducing us to God. Now, R.C. Sproul, you've heard many times come from this pulpit from Grant, myself, uh, one of the most, my, probably one of my favorite Bible teachers um, that has gone to be with the Lord. R.C. Sproul was asked one time in an interview, and in fact, I think Grant was talking about this just a few weeks ago, but he was asked one time in an interview, what is the greatest need of the church? And his answer was to be to, uh, pe- to, for people, excuse me, to witness and to encounter a holy God. That's what we need. That's what we desperately need. We need it daily within our own lives, but that's in fact what the whole world needs to encounter is a living and a holy God. In the English vernacular, we can say words like holy, we can see things like glory, we can say things like sovereignty. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to believe it. It's easy for us, as we know, in times of when things are going well, for us to say, God is good, to God be the glory, and and language like that. But the reality is this, and we have to be careful when we put ourselves in the context of the Scripture, but could you imagine for one split second with an army right behind you, and you were literally at a dead end, up to a sea, your back is literally up to the sea, and yet here you are with nowhere to go. But who provides for his people? A holy God. 
God provides the way. And through the thanksgiving and praise of Moses and the people of Israel, and as we see at verse 21, Miriam, who sang a song, they're introducing us to a holy God. God is the one who has carved this path in the Red Sea. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You and me need to encounter a holy God today. We need to encounter a holy God every single day of our lives. And so my prayer, even if you have been a student of the Bible, even if you have been a believer for many, many years, I pray for myself daily, Father, never let me come undone for the unshakable reality of your holiness. That's what I pray for myself. And that's what I'm praying for you. That's what I prayed last night when I got the phone call for Grant. And let me tell you something. If this is your first time visiting with us, this is the heartbeat of our church, for you to be awakened to a holy God. Because that will change your life. You will see life You'll see through a different lens that you've never seen before. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so what we are going to do is I'm going to walk briefly through just a few points within this song. Which, by the way, it says Miriam got together and they started dancing with tambourines. Which means, fellow Baptists, we can dance. <laughs> Just want you to know that. Especially a guy from Eastern North Carolina, that's good news to me. So, anyway, just wanted to point that out. Uh, we can dance. She did it, we can do it. And so, um, anyway, that'd be great if Jake just came out with a tambourine or something like that. But, um, but anyway, but, but, all, but all seriousness, but Moses, Israel, Miriam, what we are going to see through this song is we are going to learn about the attributes of God. And what are the attributes of God? They're His love. They're His grace. They are characteristics of God that He shows to us through the power of His Word. And so, if you have a pen and paper handy, if not, I want you to pray and ask the Lord for you to remember these things because here we are going to be introduced to a holy and living God. Number one, what we have to see here in this song of Moses is right out of the gate in verse one. It says in God's word, look with me, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, for he has triumphed gloriously, gloriously, excuse me. Verse one is God's glory. Verse 1 shows us the first attribute that we have to see is the glory of God. Moses is pointing our eyes to what matters first, the glory of God. You can see from the trajectory of his heart where Moses is helping the people of Israel and even us to see where everything has to start, and that is for God alone to be glorified, to be glorified in this endeavor of being now on the other side of the Red Sea, but also for God to be glorified in every single aspect of our own lives. When we understand the glory of God and we see it here being proclaimed, what we have to understand very quickly is that in verse 1, there is a Hebrew wordplay that is going on. What You don't see it, of course, in your English Bible. But what we see here in verse 1, and when I say Hebrew wordplay, is that Moses is actually pushing out any other option for man or Israel to be praised here. What Moses is showing us in 15 verse 1 is that no one else, nothing can get the glory in this situation. God alone can get the glory. He delivered Israel. And that's what we see here in verse 1. And that's what I mean by this Hebrew wordplay. 
And like I said just a second ago in my quasi-longer-than-usual introduction, but when we come to the idea of the glory of God and we say it and it comes off our tongue, a lot of times, and I'll, listen, I'll be transparent with you, it's easy even for me as a pastor to be able to say it and forget the weightiness that holds behind it. Because so often, even if you've been walking with Christ for a long time, it's easy for us to say it and not understand what is going on behind the word for God to be glorified. God's glory is something that is almost unsearchable. It's God's glory is something within our hearts that helps us to become undone like the prophet Isaiah. The glory of God is what answers questions deep within the recesses of our souls. The glory of God is with us so often, whether we realize it or not, in times of sorrow, doubt, and pain. The glory of God is also with us in seasons of blessing and rejoicing and of praise. And what we see here in Exodus 15 verse 1 is Moses is wanting us to see God is to be praised first. God alone is to receive glory and power. But the reality is also this, ladies and gentlemen. When you come to the fact that God alone is to be praised and for God to be glorified in every single endeavor of our lives, in every single aspect of our lives, if we are honest with ourselves, that can be a very hard pill to swallow. Not us, as the psalmist says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but for your name be glory and power, is what he says. And the reason why I say it can be a hard pill for us to swallow, because the reality is this, whether we realize it or not, because of sin, that makes us want to be getting all the glory and all the praise. You may not see it. Sometimes it's subtle. But a lot of times we do want the pat on the back. A lot of times we do want the attaboys, don't we? I like to say this in the South. I coined this one time from my grandmother. We Southerners are known for our proud humility. You know, don't, don't, listen, don't, don't say that about me, but go ahead, say it one more time. You know, it's just so, you know, the reality is it's a factor within our lives. But listen, it's not that we are trying to get praise from an act or a deed. The reality is, is sin is easily going to rise up within our hearts and our minds. It's going to, and it's going to encompass and eclipse the glory of God faster than we realize it. And what Moses says here in verse 1, the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he, God, has triumphed. He has won he has declared victory over this situation. But the other side of the glory of God that we have to realize is this. I don't want to just leave you, and I would be doing you a disservice if I said we are supposed to glorify God and I just move on. Because if you're like me, sometimes you want just a little bit more maybe practical application. And I love Grant's application every single week because we can just take it home. We can apply it through the Scriptures. But the reality is when, when I say God alone is to be glorified, we can see from Scripture alone that it has to start. If our lives are going to glorify God, if every aspect of our life is to give Him praise, it has to start where? In our heart. That's what happened to Moses. Moses is not sitting here having some existential, you know, outer body experience. No. The song is coming from his heart. A song is coming from his heart, and that's where it has to start with us. And you may be asking the question, well, Kenny, I love the Lord. I want him glorified. But what are you thinking about through the day? What does your mind go to when you're driving down the road? Or, you know, the old, like my dad used to say, you got a lot of windshield time. 
a lot of dashboard time. What do your words reflect when you're talking to friends and neighbors and family? What are you possessing on a daily basis with your eyes? Those things matter to God. And what we see and what we think about and what we do is to bring Him glory. But like I said earlier, it has to start from the heart. And how do we have a heart that will make sure it is aligned with the glory of God? We have to most importantly have that Isaiah 6 moment. If you don't know that passage, you can flip there. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we see the prophet Isaiah come into encounter a holy God. And the response of Isaiah is something that we have to do daily, and I mean that daily. We have to become undone. Woe is me, is what Isaiah says. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm falling apart, is another way for us to understand that. And then he goes on to say, what does Isaiah say? For I am a man of unclean lips. What is Isaiah saying there? He realizes he is a sinner before a holy God, and the two cannot, be compared, cannot come together. It can't happen. Sin and holiness cannot come. It's, it's beyond oil and water, and we have to understand that. But what Isaiah does is he quickly knows this. Number one, he needs atoning of his sin. Something has to cleanse him from his sin, and that can only come from a holy God. And so God grants it. He comes, the seraphim comes, the coals on his lips, he's forgiven. But then the other reality is this, that Isaiah helps us to see. When we come into encounter of a holy God, mo, excuse me, Isaiah then has the same response, I believe, in Exodus 15.1. And so then Isaiah says, as God says, who is going to go? Isaiah says, Lord, send me. The response of Isaiah shows that he has totally eclipsed in his mind and encompassed within his heart the glory of God. And so Isaiah is ready to go and to serve the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the same for thing for you and me. When we encapture a holy God and we realize that a holy God sent his only begotten son to cleanse us and to save him from his wrath, Romans 5, 9. You remember that passage? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we save by him from the wrath of God. When you realize that, when you realize and capture that within your heart, not just head, but your heart as well, you will be just like Isaiah. And you will begin to be praying and getting into the word of God, and you will desperately want every single aspect of your life to bring him glory and praise. Are you following me? Am I making sense? So what was me? is the response we daily have to have. Like Paul said, I die daily to myself. What did Christ say in Matthew 11? Pick up my cross, take it. We have to do that on a daily basis because that is what God requires for him alone to receive glory and power. Look with me, the second attribute of God that we see here. Number two, <clears throat> God is personal. God is personal. Where am I getting that? Look with me in verse 2. The Lord is, note the personal there, my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. God is personal. God is a personal God. It says my strength, my song. What is Moses saying here? This is not an impersonal and distant God. This is a holy God that is with his people. And that is amazing to think about. 
This is not saying there's no distance here that we see in verse 2 between the God of the Hebrews, God of Moses, and the God who is with us even now. We see a personal God. I'm the God of your father, it says, as Moses says later in verse 15. And we've seen this language all throughout the Scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. We see it all throughout the Scriptures. If you were to flip over to Exodus chapter 3, you don't have to if you don't want to, but if you will, flip over to Exodus chapter 3, you will see pretty quickly when God called Moses to be to the deliverer of Israel, even there he's, God is saying to Moses, not Moses to God, but God to Moses, I see in verse 7, my people. Verse 6, I am the God of your father. It's personal. It's a personal God who is with his people to deliver them from slavery. And isn't that good news to our ears? Isn't that good news to our ears and to our hearts? Because so often, as Christians, we can fall into the trap. And listen, the devil is good at throwing his dart at this. That we think of God in some translucent, in some way that he is just so far and attainable that we can never see him, right? Because we can't see the Lord, we think for that split second when the devil begins to punch and poke arrows at us, we begin to doubt his grace and his love and his mercy to us. But the reality is this, whether you see it or not, God is with us. When two or three are gathered in my name, I am what? With him. God is with his people and God is personal. And it is an amazing gift of his grace because Moses, of all people, and if you say you can't relate to this, I'll call you out on it. Because remember what Moses does in, in Exodus chapter 3? Remember he says, God, I think you got the wrong guy. Remember that? Eh, you got the, you, you're talking about Moses, not Moses. Right? But the reality is this. Moses wasn't going to go a single foot further unless a holy and living God was going to go with him. Moses, even later in, in, in Exodus, when you see, especially after the Ten Commandments, how many times does Moses say, I'm not going to go unless you go with me? Three times. God knows without the presence of God, there's nothing. And people, we have to see, capital, we have to see without the presence of God here in this place, our ministries and our churches, nothing. We have to be dependent on the Spirit of God and His power and let it work. Listen, I meant that with every fiber of my being. When Grant Cup's up here, I'm up here now. Let the Word do the work. It's not us. It's not about us. It's about God. But I want you to see here in Exodus 15, verse 2, that God is with us. And you can see this personal and loving God with us, not only here in Exodus 15, but in, I think, if you want to go ahead and flip there with me, Matthew chapter 6, I think in one of the most personal and loving ways that we can see God with us is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. This is Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, and probably one of the most, to me personally, most endearing passages in this Sermon on the Mount is when he tells his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry. He says this, listen how personal he is and how God is with us. Starting in verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? See the care of, a, of our Lord? He will clothe you. Go on a little bit further with me. Verse 32, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. The context there, don't worry about anything. God will provide all the things for you. Isn't that an amazing gift from him? Look with me in Matthew chapter 10. Just flip a few pages later. 
I got you flipping the Bible more than Grant does. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Again, the sovereignty of God here, knowing everything happens and ordains it to happen. Listen, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Think about the illustration Jesus has there. Just then the hairs on your hair are numbered. Now I've got a lot of hair and it looks pretty good today. But the reality is this, just the illustration alone, to think about how many hairs you have, God knows it. Don't you think God's going to care for all those other worries and needs and pains and sorrows and joys? See him here in Exodus 15? He's with his people. Even in Matthew 28, 20, the Great Commission, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Remember what he says to the disciples just a few verses before that. I'm going to send you a helper, a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and he comes, the helper. Don't you love that term in regards to the Holy Spirit? The helper will come. And that's what we see here. Let me tell you this. Let me pull a little Russ Andrews for you. There are so many false religions and prosperity gospel preachers out there that are going to give you nothing but dust and ashes. What you see here in Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2, is you see a holy and living God, but also a God who knows his people, who loves his people, who cares for his people, and who cares desperately for his church, the elect. And the reality is this, he died for us. Don't you think he's going to care for our everyday matters and provide the way for us to go, just like he did for the people of Israel? And so when you come to this text and you see this in this song of Moses, again, the heart is, sh- excuse me, this song is showing what's in the heart of Moses, is getting praise to a personal and loving God. Number three, write this down. God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant-keeping God. What is a covenant? In its purest sense, it's an oath-bound relationship between a person. And what does Moses say in verse two? He says, my father's God. Again, we are in verse two, my father's God and I will exalt him there in verse 2. And when you understand a, a, a covenant, now the word we can maybe use synonymously is oath. You can say vow. You maybe think of like a neighborhood covenant. You know, you can't build certain things. You know, if you know much about Washington, D.C., well, there's a lot of us who know about Washington, D.C. right now. But, but the reality of what you see in Washington, D.C. is that you know they have building restrictions. You can't build anything higher than the Capitol Rotunda, for example, right? That would be, I don't know if it's called a covenant, but you get the idea that I'm saying here. But most importantly, I think a great example of a covenant is a vow that you see on a wedding day. What you see in that vow is two people, a man and a woman, committing themselves to one another. The giving, each, giving of themselves to one another, saying, I will be with you, I will love you, I will support you until death do us part. It's a great example of a, of a covenant. And when we get to this passage here in Exodus 15 too, when Moses says, my father's God, what he is doing, and he is going back before the time of Moses. He's going back to even the covenant that God had with Adam, saying, I'm still going to be with you even though you sinned. The covenant with Noah, that's saying your people will continue to be established, and they did and fill this earth. But what he's really going to here in Exodus 15 too, is he's also going back to the covenant he had with Abraham. 
In Exodus, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12 through 15, there we see the Abrahamic covenant. And there is when God establishes a covenant with Abraham and says, I am going to make you into a flourishing nation. You're going to have descendants and offspring more than the stars and more than the sand of the sand on the sea. Meaning, God is going to fill this earth with the people to whom he has saved. And there are going to be billions and billions and billions of people that God has saved. That's what he's talking about. But the reality is this. What you see within the covenant is when Moses says here in Exodus 15 to my father's God, it's also Moses saying that God has committed himself to his people. And for us to even understand this even further, as when Moses was being called to be the deliverer of Israel in Exodus chapter 3. Remember when God said, Moses says, who, would I, who do I go to say who sent me? What does Moses say? I am sent me. Or God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. That there in the Hebrew it literally means to be. He is self-sufficient. And so we see here the idea of the Abrahamic covenant. And even here with the context of being saying to be, God has committed himself to his people and he will never leave them or forsake them. That is a holy and living God. And that's what you have to see here within Exodus 15, verse 2. And that is the covenant he has with his people. He would never leave them or forsake them. You don't see here within covenants what's the other side of the contract. We don't see that in Exodus 15, do we? As I read just a few moments ago, the full 21 verses, what you see here within this covenant, it, is going, it has been fulfilled and it continues to fulfill. God delivered the people from slavery. God saved them from the Red Sea, and God is going to move them to Sinai, where they will be an established people and worship him. And we also see, whether you realize it or not, the covenant continue through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, and that is a big if this day, if you are a believer, you are part of the new covenant, all because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross and being raised on the third day, that's the picture of the new covenant. And if you believe in that, like we sang earlier, and all I have is Christ, if you believe that you, all you have is Christ, welcome to the covenant. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our God? A covenant-keeping God who will never leave us or forsake us. This is the great I am. Look with me, number four. God is a warrior. God is a warrior. You don't see this language much described anymore, do you? That God is a warrior. But he is. Where am I getting that? Verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. If you look with me in verses 4 through 10, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he, he God, cast into the sea. The, flo the floods covered them. Who did that? God. Verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. I will draw with my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who did this? God. He is the warrior. He crushed Pharaoh and his army. And what you see here <clears throat> and these verses that I said to you is that God is victorious. 
There's no ifs and buts with if God's going to win this battle. Verse 9, this is the part that you need to see here, most importantly. Notice the three eyes there, or excuse me, no, there are three, you know, there are four there. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide my spoil, I will draw my sword. Those verses there are from the enemy. And God alone destroyed the pride of Pharaoh and his army there. God is a warrior. The practical side of this, as a Christian, we have to have war and time mentality. As you know, I love history. A lot of you have heard me up here before that I love, I love reading just about anything. And Jake will know this. Jamie would too. Lately, I've been on this kick of learning about Indians, like the Comanches and the Navajo and stuff like that. Yeah, I know. I'm a nerd. Okay. I've <clears throat> been there, done that. But something I was telling Jake and Grant not too long ago about the Comanche Indians, which, by the way, fascinating. Um, anyway, but, um, but one thing about the, I was reading this book about the Comanche Indians, is that the reason why they were so powerful in Texas and up to the New Mexico area and, and a little north and to, even all the way up to Colorado is because the Comanches always stood in a wartime mentality. People awake 24 hours, all the time. And whether you realize it or not, Christian, we are to have the wartime mentality all the time. Listen, it takes you two seconds to look on social media, the news, to see another church, another pastor, another friend of yours, another friend of mine, fall by the wayside because of sin. We see it all the time, don't we? All the time. You know, Grant said just a few months ago how, I think it was Tommy Nelson who said this. Yeah, it was. We were at the conference, but Tommy Nelson said he has never been sadder in his life of his profession pastors falling away left and right because they are trying to gratify sin. The reality is this. If we don't have that wartime mentality within our hearts and within our minds, the devil's going to take us out. But most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, the sin within our own hearts is going to take us out. The faster you flee God and not get into his word and prayer in doing this, the faster you're going to be a man on an island. And what good is that? That's dust and ashes right there. No victory is there. So what do we have to do? We have to put on this wartime mentality, but also realize this. God alone is victorious, glorious in power, for he has triumphed gloriously over the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. But two points we need to see here. Number one, we have to understand this, that this idea of that God is a warrior, God is a warrior because he is jealous for his own glory. When I say that, where am I getting that? That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Right before God gives the Ten Commandments, God says, I am jealous for my own glory. Like I said earlier, the glory of God answers all these questions. The writers in Ecclesiastes says that eternity is searching within the heart of man. The eternal can only be solved by the eternal. You realize that. And that before you were saved, just like I was, remember that never-ending searching and battle of trying to find something that's going to satisfy and it never does? Remember that battle before you came to faith in Christ? Well, guess what? It's eternity searching for eternity. And the only thing that can gratify that is the glory of God and His holiness. You understand me? 
And what we have to see here in Exodus 15 and what Moses is saying and God himself is saying is my glory, I, I will not give it to another. And that's what we see here of a holy God. And that, I promise you, Christian, will comfort your hearts and your minds more than you realize. That is what Paul is getting to the heart of in Philippians 4 when he says the peace that passes all understanding is the glory and the power of a holy and living God. So he is jealous for his glory, and he will get it. Because again, where am I getting that? That's what we're going to do forever. Flip over to Revelation 4 and 5, and that's what we're going to do. Sing his glory and his praise forever and ever. Amen. Number two, I want to say this to myself. I want to say this to you. We have to be watchful for pride. Listen, I am the most prideful person in the world. And it is an amazing gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that he saved me. If you want to be humbled, read Romans 9. If you want to be humbled, read Romans 9. The reason why I say that, when you see the act of God saving you from the foundation of the world, that means nothing of your own effort has gotten you into salvation. Nothing. It is a gift from God that he has saved us. But the reality is this, and I want to tell you this from just practically speaking and from my heart. The Lord detests a proud heart. Proverbs 16, verse 5, the Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will go unpunished. Probably the most famous passage within the Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. I love that. Now, most of the time we hear pride goes before the fall, which is a good way of understanding it as well. But I, I pull that from the NASB. That's how I learned it. And it really does set a tone there. Pride goes before destruction. That's the case for you and I, friend, whether you realize it or not. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in the United Kingdom in the 19th century, said this. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this, O believer, Learn to reject pride, seeing that you have no ground for it. Whatever you are, you have nothing to make you proud. The more you have, the more you are in debt to God. You should not be proud of that which renders you a debtor. Our life is a gift of God's grace. Every heartbeat, every breath in our lung, our eyes that we get to see one another, our homes, our friends, and the list is endless, is an immense act of God's grace. And I want us to see that here in God's Word. How do we rid ourselves of pride? Let me just tell you what Kenny Jones does personally. I pray this in Matthew chapter 5. We have to have the heart of a beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you see the spiritual hunger and the need to be saved by a holy God, it'll crush pride. Pray the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have that mentality within your heart to be hungry, it'll crush pride within a split second. Number five and our last attribute that we'll walk to together is God is loving. 
God is loving. Look with me in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people, listen, whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You have led in your steadfast love. Verse 13 says steadfast love. That word in the Hebrew is actually very hard to interpret in the English language. Steadfast love is defined by many other words that we would know in the English vernacular. It's known also with loyalty, faithfulness, but a lot of times we see it in Scripture of steadfast love. Let me take the first half of that word, steadfast, immovable, sure, steady, ready. It's another way for us to say that, the ready of love. It's constant, never moves, never is unshakable of the love of God. Hear this clear. This is the love that he has for his people. Steadfast love. If you want a great picture of this, I would invite you to read the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is nothing of examples over and over and over again of the steadfast love of the Lord. We see a picture of the steadfast love of the Lord with Ruth when she commits herself to remember her mother-in-law, Naomi. I will never leave you. My God will be your God. My people will your be people. That steadfast love, we see it with Boaz. When Boaz says, remember she, she covers his feet and he's, you know, covering me and she says to Moses, cover me with your wings. What is, Mo, what is Boaz's response? With terms of endearment, he says to her, I will cover you. I will take care of you. It's not that Moses, excuse me, Boaz is doing anything. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that's going to provide and take care of Ruth. And that's the same example we see here in Exodus 15, verse 13. God is, is a loving God. But what we also see within this love is that it's also practical. Look with me in verse 13. You have what? Led. Led. The steadfast love of the Lord will always provide a path. There's always another way of saying it, motion to be taken place. God will lead according to his love and his faithfulness. Where is he leading us? Like the psalmist says in verse 23, in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That's the path God's going to lead through his love, always towards his righteousness. But also we have to understand this. As a Christian, when we receive and we come to faith in Christ, the flip side also is this. We, in turn, have to love one another. Remember when the disciples said in Matthew 24, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, but also to love your neighbor as yourself. For that is the law and the prophets. Today in the world, love is selfish. It's self-gratifying. The world can paint for you a picture. Very quickly, love is what makes you happy. Forget everything else. That's not the love of a holy God. The love of a holy God is selfless. It serves and it leads. It's doing unto others as you would want to be done, the golden rule. And that's what we see here. But we also should understand that even when you read 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, only those attributes could come from a holy and loving God. And so what we have to see is that if we are loved by God, we in turn should love others. First John 4.20, if anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. 
There's a practical application here that we have to see. We are called to love the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. That's what the Bible says. It's not what I say. It's what the Bible says. So we have to love our neighbor. And of course, when we see the steadfast love of, a God, of, of the Lord, if you flip over there, you don't have to. Psalm 136, what is every other stanza there? That for the steadfast love of the door endures forever. Over and over and over again. Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Christian, that should give you peace. That should give you a feeling, so to speak, that is incomprehensible. To know that a holy and loving God is with you, but he loves you despite of your faults. That he saved you all because of the blood of the lamb. That's the love that we need to encounter on a daily basis. And in turn, that's going to totally change the way we look at life and the way we are to be stewards of what God has given us. Let me close with this. Where's God leading him? Verse 13, to your holy abode. Your holy abode. It says it in verse 17 as well. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God is leading and gathering his people to do what? I've already said it. To worship. He, was, he is establishing his people to come to Sinai and to worship. And what we see here today, the gathered saints of God's elect, that's what we're doing here. We are gathering. We are coming together as one to worship. All because of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're able to do this. It's all because of Christ. All I have is Christ, like Jake and the team led. All I have is Christ. But the reality is this. He is leading us one day to, our whole, to his holy abode. Whether he calls you home or whether he comes back, nonetheless, we will be, with, as a Christian, we will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it'll never go away. Because remember, hear me clear as we close. There are so many other attributes in Psalm, excuse me, Exodus 15. So many other attributes. We could spend weeks and months on the Song of Moses. But I want you to hear me today and those for who are joining us online. I want you to hear this. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you want to know His love, you want to know His unsearchable glory and power, you want to know how personal He is, how He cares for you, it can all come through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, hear me clear. If you don't know Him, come see me after, and I'll be happy to walk you through the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
We need to know the attributes of God more than we realize. We need to know the holiness of God more than we realize because there we are encountering Him. We are beholding our God. Because the reality is this, when the day of suffering comes, can we echo the words of Moses when he says this in Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You have to be silent. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you. We come before you in need of your holiness. Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your glory and power will never fade away. And Lord, as we come as your people here this morning to hear your word, to sing your songs, to greet one another in love, to encourage one another in love and good deeds, Lord, we are grateful because all of it is immense out of your grace and mercy to us. Lord, if anyone in here in this place or watching online does not know you as Savior, I pray right now, capture their heart through the Spirit, regenerate them, Lord, through your power of your Spirit, through the message of the gospel, and help them to cry out, Lord, I need you. Father, I need forgiveness, and I believe in you as Lord and Savior, and I commit my life to you. Father, as the Christian, for me, for my brothers and sisters here, help us never to get over your holiness, your glory, and your power. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.